Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Yvonne McDermott-Rees, Professor of Law, Charlotte Morgan and Andrea Stanicic, both recent graduates from the MA Global Challenges Programme, all of whom are from Swansea University. Yvonne's research focuses on how social media evidence can be used for accountability for mass human rights violations. Charlotte focuses on child poverty within a Welsh context, and Andrea works on environmental human rights. So, Yvonne, Charlotte, Andrea, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Hello. Hi. Hello. It's nice to have you all with us. And we've got three of you today, so I'll have to sort of keep tabs on that and make sure to give you all an equal say. And as a way of doing that, can I start by asking you all in turn to introduce yourselves and your areas of research, you know, what you work on, some of your findings. I'll give you about 60 seconds each. You don't have to take the whole 60 seconds. We'll start with Yvonne. Thank you very much. Well, Sam, thanks so much for having us on the podcast today. It's a it's a real pleasure. So I'm Yvonne McDermott-Rees. I'm a professor of law at the Hillary Rodden Clinton School of Law at Swansea University. And my research is on international criminal law, international and human rights law. And more recently, I've been interested in issues around evidence. How do we prove these massive human rights violations? What kind of evidence can courts use? And I teach on our MA in Global Challenges programme, which we'll hear more about as we go on, I'm sure. Very interesting area of research. Charlotte, do you want to tell us more about what you have worked on and still work on? Yes. So thank you for having us today. It's really exciting to be here. I'm Charlotte. I'm from Aberdeen in South Wales. My research focus on the programme was child poverty, as you said, and I really miss the programme already. Um, <laughs> So child poverty is an incredibly prevalent issue in Wales today as everywhere else. So nearly one in three children currently live in poverty in Wales. So I was focusing on that and ways to mitigate this issue. And I was really grateful for the opportunity to work on this because I'm from the Welsh Valleys, like I said, and poverty is incredibly, you know, it's it's here and really affects the outcomes of children. And more widely, this is a global issue that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. So, I'm, you know, I think research into this area is important. Lovely, thank you. And finally, Andrea. Thank you so much for inviting us. I come from a small uh, Western Balkan country, Montenegro, and I also had uh, that honour to be part of the first generation of an MA programme in Global Challenges at Swansea University as a Hillary Rotham Clinton scholar, the same as Charlotte. I conducted research in environmental human rights, exploring uh, relevant developments and trends uh, in the human rights approach to environmental protection. Brilliant. Thank you. And you're actually speaking to us from uh, Montenegro today, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the wonders of podcasting. Brilliant. Okay, well, all three of you have uh, you know, got quite uh, diverse, very interesting topics, and we're going to have to sort of use our time wisely, I think, to, to get stuck into all of them. So, Yvonne, before we do talk about the substance and the contents of all of your research collectively, can you just tell us a bit more about the Global Challenges MA? Because we've got two scholars here who've, who've been part of that. Yes, absolutely. So the Global Challenges MA is now in its second year. So we've had one cohort of five students, of which Charlotte and Andreas are part. And then we have currently we have a second cohort of five students. So the idea with this program is that we examine some of the big global challenges that are prevalent today. Each scholar picks their own sort of area of, of interest and they work collaboratively with a partner organization. So there's a placement aspect of the program and the experiential learning is really woven throughout the program. 
So, for example, in our current cohort, we have students who are looking, one is looking at disinformation, one is looking at climate change and climate caused displacement uh, specifically. One is looking at starvation and armed conflict. Another one is looking at special needs education. Um, so it's a really diverse cohort. And as you can maybe tell from Charlotte and Andrea, you know, not only is the a cohort of students diverse in terms of the areas of global challenge that they look at in their research, but also they're diverse in terms of their background. And um, so we really encourage interdisciplinary approaches, people who've maybe not studied law before or who've done law, but have done other things, maybe worked with NGOs or, or have some professional experience. So, yes, yeah, so we're in our second year of the program now. The scholarships are very generously sponsored by Sky. So it's a highly selective program. We choose five students each for each cohort from around the world. We get hundreds of applications. And these are really the, the creme de la creme who come to Swansea on a full scholarship uh, covering fees as well as living expenses. And um, yeah, we're so proud of our scholars and what they've achieved so far and their incredible research findings and the impact actually that their research has had even in the short uh, period of time. And you say there's obviously loads of interest in it, understandably, as you've just outlined. So it's, is there quite an exclusive feel to it? Not not sort of exclusive in, in in a bad way, but it must feel like you say that it is the creme de la creme who've been brought together. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the students get some fantastic extracurricular opportunities as well as the parts that are part of their curriculum. So the, the placement and things is, is part of their study. But on an extracurricular basis, we have these Global Challenges seminars just for our Global Challenges scholars. And last year alone, I mean, they heard from Secretary Clinton herself, from Madeleine Albright, from Judge Joanna Corner, who's UK's judge on the International Criminal Court, just to name a few. Yeah, tell us a bit more about, we have to call her Secretary Clinton, don't we? Something that us, us Brits have to get uh, used to these slightly sort of American terms. But yeah, Secretary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, the former First Lady, former, former uh, Secretary of State under Barack Obama. Uh, she's very heavily involved in all of this, isn't she? Tell us more actually about perhaps how she became to be involved in the first place. Yeah, so um, in 2017, as you might know, the law school at Swansea was renamed the Hillary Rodden Clinton School of Law. And that was in recognition of a shared commitment to human rights, children's rights in particular, which has been a really strong focus of research in the law school for, for many, many years now. And so, yeah, she came over here in 2017 and was given an honorary degree and the law school was named after her. And sort of quite organically, I believe, from that this idea of having a flagship programme to celebrate that relationship and the shared commitment to addressing these big global challenges that require this sort of tenacity and interdisciplinary approach uh, in in addressing them came about. So, yes, we designed this programme. It's got some specific aspects on things like learning about the structures of law making, of policy reform, you know, working with an organization and finding out some of the challenges that that they face in practice. But there's also obviously some content as well in terms of, so students pick modules like maybe on international human rights law, on doing advanced legal research, uh, and then they pick specialist modules on things like cyber terrorism or uh, children's rights or the environment, depending on their own area of focus. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. 
Yeah, and it's called the Global Challenges, Emma. You know, in this podcast, which isn't, which isn't connected to this program, I should say. You know, yeah. we're a separate entity, but we're exploring global problems. This is a this is a growing theme, isn't it? You know, sort of the the, the big picture, the big issues. It's sort of it's not just it's not just you, it's not just us. It's a it's a thing that sort of is university wide and sort of I guess quite sort of prevalent in the higher education sector more and more, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And it's striking to see the range of global challenges that are both cohorts by now have examined. So uh, you'll hear from Charlotte and her work on child poverty and from Andrea and her work on human rights and the environment. But we've also had people look at online harms, at the use of starvation as a weapon of war, human rights investigations, uh, disinformation campaigns and how to. So, you know, we are in an era where we have these massive interconnected global challenges. And I think the pandemic, as, as Charlotte sort of alluded to, pandemic has only really brought a lot of these things home, that we realise that some of the inequalities that were entrenched already have just really come to the fore in the light of the pandemic. And it's, yeah, I think it's shone the light on some of these big issues. Can I just ask one other thing about, you know, the fact that the law school is named after Secretary Clinton, the fact that she's affiliated to the, to the MA programme in particular. What do you think the value is of, of having these affiliations or naming things after political figures? Because you know, no political figure is ever going to be completely uncontroversial, are they? So, well, I don't know, what, what do you make of it all? I think Secretary Clinton has been a phenomenal supporter of the law school in general, but of this programme in particular. So last February, we had this event where we celebrated our first cohort who had just graduated and we introduced our uh, our current cohort of five scholars. And, you know, what really struck me was the intense personal interest she took in each one of these students as individuals. So interested in their research and their findings, asking them, well, you know, what are you going to do next with this? What have you learned from this experience with your work with, for example, UNICEF or one of the other partner organizations? It's been of remarkable value in that. I mean, I think it's a huge booster for these students who are, you know, phenomenally talented, but very much at the start of their careers to have this global figure really endorse your work and take an interest in the research you've done is it's exceptional. So I think that's one big value. I think the other thing is just the connections it brings. So, you know, I think a lot of these guest speakers who we've had to come and give these leadership seminars to our scholars have probably been influenced by the name, you know, come and talk to our Hillary Rodham mm. Clinton scholars mm. um, and by some of the connections that the Clinton team have been able to introduce us and connect us to uh, some of these leaders in the fields. Yeah, I see those as the two big benefits of this relationship. Great. Can we just talk very briefly, Yvonne, about what you actually work on? Because as I said in the introduction, you focus on social media evidence being used in cases of mass human rights violation. And the first thing that springs to my mind when I when I hear that is that we often hear now about how social media can be unreliable and that there's lots of problems with it. So there's obviously a broader challenge here with the use of social media as evidence, isn't there? Absolutely. So I think just in general, the advent of social media has had a hugely transformative impact on evidence in criminal proceedings. You know, I would put it up there with DNA uh, fingerprinting in terms of the transformative effect it's had on, on evidence. You know, we can look at things like the George Floyd case to see, you know, really the impact that this kind of evidence has had 
it seems very unlikely that there would have been a conviction in that case were it not for someone recording this and posting it online. And, you know, it's almost a natural reaction by now, isn't it? You know, when people come across notable events or, oh, it looks like there's something interesting happening on the street. It's almost like an immediate reaction. They pull out their mobile phones and they start recording. And the same is true in situations of armed conflict, um, situations of crimes against humanity. People are just picking up their mobile phones and recording this evidence and sharing it with the world. So there's an incredible statistic that there are more hours of footage of the Syrian conflict on YouTube than there were hours of the conflict itself. So there's a really potentially a treasure trove of evidence here that international criminal courts can use, that human rights commissions of inquiry and fact-finding missions can use. But as you say, there are some massive challenges with it. So the first is just the volume of evidence, you know, trying to figure out from this huge volume of evidence, what is the most relevant. There are issues around what we call the probative value. So how much weight can a court actually give to this kind of evidence? And I guess what's different to, say, CCTV kind of footage or even a domestic criminal case where you might have a bystander who's picked up the mobile phone and recorded it, is that often the person who's captured this evidence in the situation of mass human rights violations, their identity is either unknown or they're unable to come and testify and give evidence about the conditions under which they record this. So in our research, we've looked at, well, you know, what can be done in place of that? So what methods can investigators use to, for example, geolocate this piece of content? Is it really from Syria or is it from somewhere else? Can they use things like chronolocation to figure out approximately what time this was taken? So yeah, there's some really interesting challenges, but I think also some really interesting opportunities with this kind of evidence. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, what if an anonymous account that has some sort of long handle with lots of numbers in the in the in the mm. title and sort of posts a bit of, I don't know, anecdotal information, can, can that be used as evidence? Yeah, I would say unlikely. So I think what's really valuable is the sort of images and videos that are posted online. And then there's a question, I mean, of course, they can be manipulated and, and edited as well. But I think if you had, yeah, like an anonymous account that said, I'm here in Swansea and I've just seen this. I think that would have very limited probative value. Sure. Can you tell us about this mock hearing that you've recently completed? Because it's very interesting. Yeah. So uh, I work a lot with an organisation called GLAN, the Global Legal Action Network. And GLAN do a lot of activities to secure accountability for human rights violations. And one of the projects that they worked on was with Bellingcat, a fairly well-known investigative journalism organisation preserving content that was posted on social media from the war in Yemen, and particularly looking at footage of airstrikes in Yemen, mostly conducted by the Saudi-led coalition in the country. In any event, one question that we get asked a lot is, so we've had some cases in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Sweden, that have used this kind of social media footage to secure accountability for these international crimes. And we often get asked, well, what would happen in England and Wales? Because uh, England and Wales and, and other common law systems have a different system of admissibility of evidence. So if you're in a civil law uh, continental system, they tend to have much freer approach. All sorts of evidence can get admitted to the record and weighed up by the judge, um, largely because they don't have juries, they have professional judges. But here, because we have jury trials, 
And and just because it's our legal tradition, I guess, we have this very strict system of admissibility. You know, certain types of evidence just can't be admitted in legal proceedings. So and um, when we get asked this question, well, what would happen in England and Wales? We had to answer we don't know <laughs> because we hadn't had any of these big flagship cases so far. So we came up with this idea, well, how about we test it out by having a mock trial? So we arranged a whole mock legal proceedings where we had a real piece of footage from the war in Yemen, but everything else about the case was fictional. So we had this fictional defendant who was on trial and we had a real life judge, Judge Joanna Corner, who's a British judge now going to uh, be sitting in the International Criminal Court. And we had two sets of lawyers, a, Q, a QC, a Queen's Counsel on either side, defence and prosecution, and the junior barrister. And we had some expert witnesses who were subject to cross-examination. And for us, the whole point of the exercise was really, first of all, to test the methodology that Bellingcat and Glan had come up with for preserving this kind of evidence and to see, OK, if this does come up in court, what are the challenges that the lawyers might raise to it? What are the big questions that might be asked? And how could they strengthen the methodology effectively to, to mitigate against some of that? So it was a really interesting exercise. And yeah, it's all available online on YouTube if anyone wants to watch the entire trial and then Judge Coroner's ruling on the admissibility of evidence. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. Brilliant. I'd like to talk more about it, but if people want to follow up and look at it, what should they search for exactly on YouTube? Oh, if they search for, I think it's called Pushing Principles into Practice, um, Mock Admissibility Hearing. But it's on the Swansea Law uh, YouTube page. So if people look at that, they should be able to find it. There we go. Wonderful. Thank you. Right. I'm going to turn to Andrea, actually. Hi, Andrea. Now, you, for your um, your, your projects and your focus was analysing the greening of established human rights. So my first question, sort of from my layman's perspective, is what does that mean? Tell me more about it. Environmental human rights are a response to an increasing overlap between environmental and human rights concerns. Uh, so, in other words, uh, causing harm to the environment is uh, at the same time uh, harming human rights and the other way around, uh, causing harm to human rights is uh, harming to the environment. If you know that uh, according to the World Health Organization, uh, exposure to environmental hazards in the air, uh, water, uh, food, buildings and communities uh, causes about uh, one quarter of the global burden of diseases, uh, it is easy to realize the connection between health and the environment. But actually, the relationship between the environment and human rights has uh, many different uh, angles and uh, the right to life, uh, right to health, uh, right to privacy and uh, right to property are just some of the rights uh, that are being uh, interpreted uh, in environmental context uh, by different human rights bodies, such as the European Court of Human Rights, uh, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, European Committee of Social Rights uh, and others. So that's actually the, the that's called the greening of uh, human rights because uh, already existing human rights are being uh, interpreted and uh, applied in uh, environmental uh, context. Very interesting, and I presume there's a sort of a big scale and a small scale here. So I assume on like sort of the the big macro scale, we're probably talking about things like climate change, I would guess. But also, I mean, just for example, yesterday I read that you know even sort of more 
trees in local urban environments help soak up some of the, the heat that would otherwise be absorbed by things like concrete. And that makes life more pleasant for people. So when you looked at your, or when you were doing your work, was there sort of this focus on some, you know, the more small local things or was it on the sort of the bigger, grander picture? Uh, so I was also exploring individual cases where uh, specific human rights uh, were affected through certain um, environmental harms. For example, um, someone might think how the right to privacy can be affected by the environment. But in fact, it's it's one of the rights that uh, is to a large extent affected by the environment because how one can enjoy their private and family life if, uh, for example, the air they breathe is uh, severely damaged because of the factory built, uh, for example, nearby their home. Yet this is a reality for many people. So I think it's uh, it's pretty clear how uh, human rights uh, may be affected by environmental uh, harms. And also, if you think the other way around, how human rights violations can lead to environmental harm, uh, you can take, for example, the right to information. If this right is not respected, people and uh, environmental advocates um, cannot have uh, enough information about different projects uh, that might cause harm to the environment. And this is also true for the right to participate in decision-making and the right to justice, for example. So uh, actually, then they don't have uh, the basic conditions to, to act. Therefore, the whole point is that uh, a healthy environment cannot be ensured without uh, respecting, uh, protecting and fulfilling human rights, as well as the other way around. Understood. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? I was interested uh, because it's a very dynamic field, because it's uh, still developing, you know. At the beginning, human rights and environment were developing as separate uh, fields. But uh, soon it became apparent that uh, these two fields are interlinked and uh, therefore they they started to to merge together within different uh, legal instruments. So uh, it was uh, very uh, interesting to to see how these things were uh, developing. Are there particular parts of the world that you were interested in or you focused on because you thought the problem or or the challenge was particularly acute, particularly sort of bad there? Well, I was more focusing like on a global picture. So I was uh, exploring different um, instruments. Uh, I was um, analyzing um, relevant um, articles of the, for example, Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment uh, from 1972 and also Rio Declaration on Environment and Development from 1992 because these are cornerstone soft law instruments that connected uh, human rights and the environment. But we can also see here how soft law instruments, although non-binding, can be very influential because they actually have set the course for further uh, developments in this area. So, for example, the procedural environmental components that were first time created in the Principle 10 of the Rio Declaration uh, later uh, came into life with the Aarhus Convention from 1998 and also more uh, recently with uh, Escazú Agreement from uh, 2018. It's really hard to stress enough the importance of these instruments. The Arcos Convention, uh, which has been uh, perceived as a fundamental step towards uh, integrating human rights and the environment, and uh, also a life-changing potential that Escazú Agreement has for Latin America, which proved to be a largely uh, unsafe uh, environment for the environmental human rights defenders. 
the, the biggest challenge for me was uh, because I was uh, exploring this area for the first time. So I needed to make sure that I provided a background and framework within which I can then discuss more specific examples. So in the end, uh, I also um, focused more on uh, specific examples of Montenegro and Serbia, because also in these uh, uh, legal cases uh, before the courts in these two countries, uh, uh, human rights and the environment were sort of uh, interacting. And I then identified uh, certain cases, 17 in Montenegro and 12 um, in Serbia, among which different human rights were invoked in environmental context, uh, including the, the right to healthy environment itself, but also the right to property, the right to privacy, uh, and so on. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Can you give us like a specific example because you've 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 painted a really sort of interesting picture there of the the kind of the the broad context but yeah sort of like a a working example of, of something that you did or something you looked at would be amazing. I was researching online databases of uh, courts uh, in um, Western Balkan countries so uh, I was doing this research through uh, uh, keyword research, and then I identified relevant cases, uh, which were then uh, analyzed and uh, discussed. Um, for example, one really interesting case uh, that I identified in Serbia uh, was about the actually interaction between the environment and uh, the right to privacy, but at the same time also health. It was uh, the case where um, it's called a smelly buildings case uh, because uh, yeah, um, a family was living in an apartment uh, in a building which um, was releasing uh, very smelly and toxic chemicals. And uh, this was really damaging to, to the, their health. They developed certain medical uh, conditions. Um, this case was really interesting because uh, here the court has uh, really highlighted how much the uh, apartment is uh, important and actually the, the conditions uh, in which family and, and uh, private life can be enjoyed are very important. And uh, also in that sense, uh, environmental circumstances are uh, important. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Amazing. I will come back to you, Andrea, uh, but for the moment, thank you very much. Charlotte, let's talk about your work for a bit because you work on the issue of child poverty in the UK and specifically you focused on the situation in Wales. So tell us more. So yeah, my research examines whether children in Wales are unable to access their rights due to socioeconomic disadvantage that they may experience and how this disadvantage has been worsened by COVID-19. So I examined the devolved law and policy context in Wales and tried to find areas that need policy change. So a little more context. To address child poverty, the Welsh government takes a children's rights-based approach. They aim to eradicate child poverty by 2020 within this approach. But obviously this hasn't happened because one in three children are still living in poverty. Um, so it shows that although our children's rights framework is strong and it does allow for you know, a good policy approach towards lessening child poverty, it's not actually being achieved. And there also isn't any child poverty delivery plan in Wales now and no updated eradication date. So it sort of feels like we're not working towards anything. 
Although there's some support available for disadvantaged children, so for example, free school meals and like throughout the holidays at the moment as well, um, many families living in poverty are just above the threshold for being eligible for the support and many are not even aware of the help that is available to them. So it's disjointed and there's obviously no reason for that and it means that many children are slipping through the cracks. So yeah, that's what I've been working on. How do we how do we measure poverty? I, mean, I remember reading something a little while ago that there's different indicators here. You can either do it by sort of actual rates and measure it against something, or you can do it sort of as a relative. You know, poverty can sometimes be a relative term. It's sort of uh, there'll always be a certain percentage of the population in poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how how do we measure it? I think a lot of the time when we talk about poverty, we think of absolute poverty, which is you're right. It's when you can't afford the basic necessities. So, for example affording heating of food and a lot of families do have to choose between them a lot of the time but I think it's a lot more than that so in terms of relative poverty these things can affect a child's physical development in terms of absolute poverty but it's also important to recognize poverty in terms of a child's lack of access to extracurricular activities and wider opportunities and how this affects their emotional and cultural development which I would say is more the relative poverty side. So it's things like not being able to afford to send your child on a school trip or to a sports club. And it just creates this environment of exclusion. And obviously this will affect the emotional well-being of a child. And it's quite frustrating for them. And yeah, so there's it's not just about basic amenities. That obviously is very important, but it's also about how it affects them emotionally and how this has an impact on the way they grow up as well. I read some, some figure that you supplied me actually just before this, and, and it, I was quite staggered actually. And this is probably more indicative of me as the questioner and in terms of what what surprises me and the things I choose to ask. But did you say that a third of people in some of the areas that you were looking at are classed as living in poverty? Yes. Yeah. And I think like the pandemic has really shown that. So I conducted some interviews for my research. And one of the interesting things that came from one of the interviews was one of the interviewees suggested that the pandemic had actually created sympathy for those living in poverty. Because I feel like you know, it, one in three, it sounds extortionate, but it's not something that we talk about all the time. But I think as the pandemic has pushed further families and people into poverty, it's something that's creating a lot more empathy and bringing it to the forefront how prevalent this issue is, like Wales in the UK, elsewhere. It is everywhere at the moment. I think some people might ask, un- understandably, and in some ways I-, I would ask too, because I mean, I'm a social and political historian of kind of post-war Britain. And I can sort of pinpoint periods or, or times in the immediate post-war years where, you know, big families genuinely didn't have enough money or resources to feed themselves and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we are a significantly wealthier country now, but it's, it's a bit like what you say, isn't it? This isn't, you're not, this, this isn't about starving necessarily, it's about other things. But does that mean the sort of the goalposts of the definition have changed a little bit then? Yeah, I would say, but then in other ways, they really haven't. So, mm. um you know, like I said about eligibility in Wales for free school meals, that isn't high enough. And there are families who are on the threshold, but maybe because, you know, they're either in work and so they miss out on that. And it shouldn't be that because they're in work, they're missing out on those things. And I think that can frustrate people and it, it creates a problem then of talking about the issue, I, I think, in my opinion. And in Wales, like a number of, of levers to address child poverty, such as the social security system, they remain with the UK government. So we have a devolved government, um, but that is a reserve model, which means that some things still remain with the UK government and austerity measures such as entitlement caps and sanctions under the universal credit regime. 
like they're recognized as affecting disadvantaged children disproportionately when they should be helping. So I definitely think it's a bit backwards the way we think about it. And the rollout of universal credit has been noted as like a major driver of child poverty. And the First Minister in Wales has said that such policies have basically made it increasingly harder to eradicate and even mitigate child poverty in Wales. So, you know, like these areas, it is it's quite frustrating because obviously the boundary isn't working, as you said. We've actually touched upon in previous episodes of this of this series the impacts of COVID-19 on people from poorer backgrounds, without a doubt, isn't there? There's been much, much more negative side effects for a huge part of the population that we maybe don't hear about and don't see as often. And this kind of funnels directly into the kind of uh, work that you've been doing. Yeah, 100%. Like the impact of the pandemic is way worse than the effects of poverty for many families across Wales. And there are concerns uh, specifically for children about the long-term effects of school closures on a child's development, the closure of food banks, which is like a massive help for some families. And, you know, for children in school who they may not have had access to a laptop or learning materials throughout lockdown. So what effect is that having? And we already know that gaps in maths and literacy skills between children from higher and lower socioeconomic backgrounds, they often widen during school holidays. So children were off school for a little while and then learning from home. So you can imagine the potential impact that that will have on learning outcomes. So yeah, I think it's really shone a light on existing things. So like the digital divide in the UK and Wales, more specifically, like children in poverty are less likely to be able to get that the resources they need but there was support offered so the Welsh government recognised the educational disadvantage of digitally excluded learners and that these are more likely to be those in poverty and they announced like really early on in the pandemic actually I think it was April 2020 that like three million pounds would be allocated to students with no access to um, either appropriate internet connected devices or just you know tablets anything like that so they could take part in online learning activities. And it didn't reach everyone, but obviously that made a huge difference for many children, as have, um, you know, the Welsh Government promised to extend free school meals throughout the holidays until next year. I think that's a really good, positive thing as well. Yeah, I think we spoke to Professor Tom Crick about all of this, sort of saying that, you know, not everybody in Wales, for example, just had three different electronic devices that they could use for homeschooling. So it's some people might think that's all very easy, but the realities on the ground were, were very different. And it's gonna there's gonna be a big knock-on effect in the long term of this, isn't there? That's what I worry about. Yes, definitely. And like in terms of then here and now, like how do you navigate if you're a family? And I remember reading one throughout the pandemic about a family who, you know, they're all in this one room three kids and the adults, adults trying to work from home, children trying to do work from school. Like, how do you navigate that? Like, there's there's no way. But yeah, definitely poverty can affect you for the rest of your life. So I think that was what was really interesting about working with Save the Children Wales, because they work a lot on this. They say that the effects of poverty on a child's development begin even before they're born. And, you know, they're even more likely to struggle with vital areas of the development in early years, which is a really crucial stage. But how much has the pandemic exacerbated that? Like, we don't know yet, but, you know, we can take a guess that it is, it's going to have a huge effect. Yeah, definitely. And as part of your MA programme, did you do quite a lot of practical work? You just mentioned Save the Children there, but sort of who else did you work with to really get stuck into this? Yeah, so I did a lot of work with Save the Children and through them I was able to go to End Child Poverty Network meetings as well, which was really great. 
because I got to sit around a table and listen to different perspectives from organizations. And that really fed into my research. And we also got to, um, as one of our leadership seminars, we got to speak to the Children's Commission of England, which was hugely beneficial. Like it, it was so, so important to have her perspective on what was going on in England specifically. You know, and I think like I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that we did have because of, as Yvonne said, like it is so far reaching the program is. And I, I can speak for myself and Andrea and say like we both absolutely loved her and we're really grateful for what we learned. So, yeah. When it comes to the, the child poverty concerns, there's a postcode lottery element to all of this, isn't there, that you identified? Yes. So that was something that I was really surprised to find in my research. So, as I said, I conducted interviews and it was brought up by a lot of the participants. So one of them worked in a school and they said that like, you know, there's children who are told from an early age that like they're not going to amount to much just because they're from a certain area, which really shocked me because that's not something you expect to hear really. Like I, I didn't think that those attitudes would still be around. And another participant said that it basically depends on the what local authority a child lives in. So she said, like, because of the ability of a local authority to make its own decisions, sometimes you have a bit of a postcode lottery. Some children benefit in some areas that if that same child in the exact same circumstances lived in another local authority in Wales, they'd have a different level of support. Um, so, you know, like access to free uniforms, some, some local authorities offer that and some don't. And that just seems, you know, it just seems unnecessary, doesn't it? It should never be that what area in Wales you are, it depends on your learning outcomes for the rest of your life. Like that isn't something that strikes as fair at all. Yeah, I guess passing no comment on the actual politics of it, but you can see why the the, the rhetoric from sort of the Westminster government about levelling up has some sort of purchase. You can see why people are attracted to that those kinds of ideas, I suppose. Which, which leads me on to just one final thought, because I know that you did a BA in history, as, as did I. Yes. And sort of, again, with my sort of historian's hat on, whenever we have these kinds of discussions about this kind of stuff, for me, I always go back to thinking about this balance that people have tried to strike over the past, well, 100 years and more between sort of the role of the state, the role of government in people's lives and kind of the role of individuals to kind of shape their own circumstances. So do you have any thoughts about that? Or do you just sort of sit anywhere, particularly on sort of how involved government should be in these kinds of things? Oh, it's a tricky one. I definitely feel like, you know, with, with our government, we have a Labour government in Wales and they are relatively, I would say, very hands-on, um, you know, with intervening with things like poverty you know, they're not as good as they could be, but within their children's right framework, I think that's so important. But in terms of personal responsibility, I do feel like, like I just said, there's a social stigma with poverty. And I feel like either a lot of people will not want to ask for help um, because of this stigma, or, you know, you're conditioned to think that you are stuck in this sometimes. And I think that can really have an effect on people's mentality. But yeah, I definitely think that it is the role of the state and of course, like schools, local authorities. I think that it needs to be better coordination in what they do to support individuals and families with young children. And I think that really would make a difference if it was more coordinated. Yeah. So I'd like to turn to both of you, Charlotte and Andrea, and just ask, you know, what, what does the future hold for you personally? Where might you see I know your career is going, how might you use your research in, in the future? What's going to happen? And Andrea first. Right now, I'm uh, in the process of uh, figuring out 
how to continue to work on this field. And uh, I'm definitely planning uh, to uh, be involved uh, to work in an NGO or international organization. So, I mean, uh, I leave the doors open and uh, I will see how what, what's the best uh, way. <laughs> Great. And um, what about you, Charlotte? What does the future hold? Um, big question. <laughs> I'm very Welsh and proud, so I feel very passionate about working on issues um, like child poverty in Wales. I'm currently working at British Heart Foundation Cymru as a policy intern, and I work a lot on health inequalities. And a lot of this focuses on socioeconomic disadvantage and how they affect health outcomes, which I'm really enjoying. So I definitely feel like, like the same as Andrea, I want to keep working for um, organisations, third sector organisations, and trying to yeah, really tackle these inequalities that we see every day. I really want to see that change. So fingers crossed. Yvonne, coming back to you, it must be it must be quite nice to, you know, listen to to these two scholars sort of talking and reflecting on on things. How does it make you feel? Oh, incredibly proud. I mean, I'm just I'm always really blown away when I hear any of our scholars speaking about the research, but just the depth of knowledge and the expertise that they've fostered in really quite a short period of time to be able to answer these, you know, quite complicated questions. Yeah, on sorry about that. Loan policy. <laughs> no, 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 it's really, it's, it's really fascinating. And yeah, I'm just, I'm super proud. I can't, I can't take any credit for their, their expertise or their research or their skills, but I'm glad to have played a very small part in their professional development. It, it does strike me that there are, there are moments and times in life, but in sort of research as well, where in a relatively short period of time, you do, you do a lot and you learn a lot yes. and you learn quite quickly. And this strikes me as the kind of program that really kind of fits into that. Absolutely. I think it's very intensive. Academically, it's, it's very rigorous and, and challenging, but no bother at all to our, our two cohorts of scholars. I think when you're dealing with these big complex problems. I think they deserve this sort of period of intense research and reflection. And I think that's one of the big benefits of the program is it's so bespoke for each scholar. You know, they choose their area of focus and they focus so intently on it. All of the assignments and stuff are geared around just building that expertise, adding extra layers to the problems that they're addressing and thinking about different angles and stuff. So, yeah, I think that's one of the big benefits of this programme. And Yvonne, there are hopefully people listening to this who've come to it because they're interested in the topic, but now they're feeling particularly inspired either to sort of work in the area of global challenges or even maybe to come and study or, or try and, you know, sort of uh, compete to get onto this very competitive programme. So what kind of advice would you would, would you give them if they are interested either generally or quite specifically on in this, in this MA? Absolutely. So I think on the first question, you know, on addressing global challenges, what advice would I give to students? I would say find your niche, find the thing that really drives your passions. And, you know, you can see it or you can hear it when you listen to Andrea and Charlotte speaking, because these are things that, uh, you know, they've really honed in on because they're personally very interested in. I think that's that's important for anyone doing research, you know, the same goes if you're interested in doing a PhD or whatever. I think, you know, you need to be so passionate about the topic from the outset because you spend so much time on it that by the end you're you're bound to be sick of it <laughs> in a sense. But you know, there's still something there that's driving your interest and your passion. So that's one thing I would say, find your niche. The second I would say is open your mind to interdisciplinary perspectives. Like I think any of these problems aren't going to be solved by the law alone or by 
policy alone or by historical perspectives alone. I think one needs to be able to open up your research into other domains to to really get to the heart of these. So, yeah, that's the second piece of advice I gave on the Global Challenges Programme specifically. So we'll have Fingers crossed, we should have a third cohort starting in January 2022 and applications will be opening around September time for that. One thing that really strikes me about each of our cohorts of five scholars has been they've all just been really collaboratively minded people and they've worked really well together as as a group and they've supported each other through these, you know, this very intensive programme. You know, I think sometimes when people apply for these prestigious uh, programs, they feel the need to be like, I am the leader. <laughs> but actually what we look for is someone who's going to come into this with with the passion and the drive and the ability, you know, the intellect to be able to to do this work, but to do it in a really um, supportive and open minded way. So that's one tip. The other thing I would say is try and have some like practical experience. So, for example, Charlotte, one thing that really impressed us by her, which she hasn't mentioned because she's so modest, but she's done incredible work with the local food bank for many years now. And that was something that we were like, oh, wow, you know, and what better place person to look at these issues around child poverty and and uh, the impacts of it than someone who has, you know, really been on the cold face and seen the impacts of some of these policies in practice. So, yeah, so that practical experience, I think, really makes people stand out from the crowd. And Charlotte, Andrea, have you got any final tips sort of to, to, to answer that same question? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, similar as Yvonne said, uh, my honest advice would be to really think about uh, what you are passionate about. Um, it can really be anything. Uh, it can be art, uh, writing, advocating, or it can be some fields such as the environment or human rights, obviously. And uh, then think how you can use that passion or skill to uh, address uh, some of the uh, pressing uh, societal challenges. And in that way, you will make sure that you do both what you love and what's relevant, uh, bringing a very much needed change. Uh, For example, you can start uh, with joining an NGO, explore how you can contribute to its activities, uh, explore your interests, uh, connect with interesting people with whom you can uh, broaden your perspectives, or maybe even find a new passion. Lovely. Charlotte? Yeah, I'd say really similar. Have a think about what areas you're passionate about, how you want to create change. And I'd really, really stress, like Yvonne said, pursuing volunteering opportunities that relate to these areas so you can see how organisations approach addressing global challenges. I think experiences with these organisations can often help you decide what area you want to fo- like, you know, really focus in on and inspire you to push for change. And it can also lead to amazing opportunities. So for me, I volunteered at a global action organisation and that's where I found out about the Global Challenges Programme, which was, oh, just loved it. And, you know, I felt really encouraged, even though I didn't have a low background, you know, I, I really felt passionate about it, like Yvonne said. And also just in terms of career prospects, like volunteering gives you a lot of relevant experience that universities and employers are always looking for. So, yeah. Get stuck in, get involved. And even if it doesn't lead to something directly, then there's no harm, is there, in having done all this extra stuff? It always, it's, it's, it's good for perspective, for sure. Yeah. Okay, that was all really, really interesting. Uh, Thank you all three of you for letting me throw some sort of quite imperfectly formed questions at at some point at you, but uh, you dealt with them brilliantly and it's been a a great discussion. So thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Thank you too, yeah.
To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to our guests, Professor Yvonne McDermott-Reese, Andrea Stanicic and Charlotte Morgan. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.